Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Wakamitate, a podcast that has walked all the way into Kanto 5 of Purgatorio. We are in a section of Purgatorio now that is a follow-up to the first 21 lines. We're at lines 22 through 36 of Kanto 5 of Purgatorio. You can find this medieval translation into English on my website, my translation, on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off, make notes, do all those things, drop comments, do all that stuff. This passage is actually an immediate follow-up to where we've been. Uh, Dante was pointed out by some of the negligent souls under the rock in the shade. He turned around. He seemed to be a little flattered by it. Maybe Virgil launched into a giant critique of the pilgrim, a reprimand, and the pilgrim appeared shamed and so followed along behind Virgil. This passage appears contradictory (laughs) to what we just did, so let's get to it. Lines 22 through 36 of Canto 5 of Purgatorio. At the same time, some other people were traversing the slope a little ways ahead of us. They were singing the Miserere line by line. When they realized that my body stopped the sun's rays from passing through, their chant wound down to a long and rattling, oh. Morphed into messengers, two of them ran over to us and demanded, make us understand your condition. And my master replied, you can turn around and go back to the ones who sent you over here, reporting that this man's body is made of true flesh. If those guys stopped because they saw his shadow, as I suspect, they've got enough of an answer. Let them do the pilgrim Dante honor, and it may turn to their profit. I should say before we get into the episode that Virgil doesn't say that Pilgrim Dante, he says, let them do him honor. I added those words just so we'd be really clear about who was being talked out here. This is a curious passage because it seems to be happening almost contemporaneously with the first 21 lines of Canto V, or at least they're happening very closely together. They seem to overlap, which puts them in greater contrast to each other. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about their reaction to Dante and to seeing his body. And then let's talk about Virgil's very different reply here. And at the end of this podcast, I want to talk a little bit about where we are because we haven't really talked about that. And it seems important to go through exactly where we are at this point. The passage starts out, at the same time, some other people were traversing the slope a little ways ahead of us. They were singing the Miserere line by line. This is the second song in Purgatorio. We saw those souls get out of the angel's boat singing out of Egypt or up from Egypt, that hymn based on a psalm. And now we see a second song in Purgatorio, Miserere. But not only is it the second song in Purgatorio, it's, of course, a reference right Right back to Inferno, to the first canto, line 65, when Virgil, the shade, appears, what is Dante saying except miserere? And we talked about this 
endlessly that the first line that Pilgrim speaks is in Latin. The Miserere, of course, is a very specific part of the Mass, but there is a way in which we are still being cued here that we are in introductory material, Miserere. This is happening basically at the same time, contemporaneously, it's not exactly simultaneous, but close enough with what happened in the last passage, that is, the souls under the rock pointing out Dante the Pilgrim. Now here are other people who are now walking, not just lying about in the shade, and they too make the same remark, essentially, that the sun doesn't pass through the pilgrim's body. In one passage, we had Virgil turn with a reprimand. Here we have Virgil seemingly almost proud of the fact that Dante's in his body. He's like, whoa, check this guy out. He's in true flesh, true flesh. Such an interesting phrase, one we'll come back to as we pass through the passage. They see that his body stops the sun's rays from passing through it, and that chant of the miserere winds down to a long and rattling O. It's really interesting that the body stops the miserere, the have mercy on me. You can think about this theologically till the cows come home. That is, that the physical flesh stops the plea for forgiveness, that the physical body winds down the miserere. Think about the church's body-soul split, and here we're seeing it almost work out in the drama. They see a physical body, the sun's rays can't pass through it, and the miserere winds down to a long and rattling oh morphed into two messengers two of those guys run over to them and demand make us understand your condition notice how different this is from Balakwa and his clan they are lazing about in the shadow under the rock these guys are traversing they're going along and now they're running they're singing they're active. It winds down. It doesn't stop them. Instead, they run. It's all very intriguing, a contrast between Balakwa's clan and these guys. Barolini, the great Dantista at Columbia, claims that there is an elegiac tone for the body throughout the early cantos of Purgatorio. And part of what happens in these early cantos is a kind of elegy for the body. Oh, I wish I were still in my body. Certainly the souls that we're about to meet in this crowd are complaining, complaining, I don't know, lamenting their sliced open bodies at the end of their life. It's all a curious interest in the body. You can think of the way the poem, without directly saying it, is circling around the physical form again and again and again in these early cantos of Purgatorio and thinking about how the body relates to the soul the arms passing through Casella, the first time a soul is not affected by a physical body in comedy. These souls who are all very interested in the fact that that pilgrim still has a body. Because in the end, and I don't need to tell you this maybe, or maybe I do, I don't know. But in the end, you should know that as a created entity in Christian theology, you are only complete when you're a body and a soul. You are complete in a physical and spiritual union. We can think about that more fully in terms of what's going on around 
these cantos, but for right now, what we're seeing is a lot of souls who are very interested in bodies, to say the least. The passage goes on. My master replied, you can turn around and go back to the ones who sent you over reporting that this man's body is made of true flesh. If those guys stopped because they saw his shadow, as I suspect, they've got enough of an answer. Let them do him honor and it may turn to their profit. Now, this is this whole idea that you can pray for the people. We've already encountered this with Manfred, with Balakwa, that you can pray for people and aid them in their journey in purgatorio. So, hey, guys, you got a living body here. If you pay nice attention, if you're nice to him, he might make it back to the land of the living and then he could actually do something for you (laughs) besides just put you in his poem and make you a character in his poem, which is a way in which he's given them an eternal life or at least a 700 year life. So what's the deal with Virgil here? Why does Virgil seem suddenly so, hey, look at this guy, he's in his body. But just a few lines ago, he was so irritated at Dante for looking back and seeming to take pride in the fact that he was in his body. There are various ways we can look at this. Maybe, and this is one way commentators have looked at it, that Virgil has had a curious change of heart. Um, And this is an interesting question. Uh, Is it that Dante is the center of attention previously, but here he can do something for them? He can return to the land of the living and pray for these souls. Previously, it was just all about being the center of attention. In this passage, this is where it can be a little transactional. And so Virgil is more amenable to this moment. Or... Here's another way to say it. Is it that Virgil wants to be the center stage (laughs) and be the center of the stage after all of his drubbings? And, oh, there's some worse drubbings ahead. You know Virgil's come in for it already in Purgatorio several times. And is it that in this case, Virgil gets to step forward and say, hey, I know everything about this guy. Just just listen to me. I know all there is to know about this guy. In the last passage, they seemed not even to notice Virgil. Who, who cares who's walking next to this guy who's cast in a shadow? In this passage, Virgil seems to insert himself up into it and say, oh, pay attention to me over here. If so, it's an interesting characterization of Virgil. I don't quite buy it, but I think it's an interesting characterization of Virgil. Or is the difference the point? This is a difficult way to say it. So let me just try to tease this out for a minute. Is the difference between Virgil's two speeches the whole point? That is, I have to figure out why Virgil makes a difference. And the text is not going to directly tell me the difference in Virgil's previous reprimand and his seeming glowing, I know everything here. The text is not going to fill it in completely for me. And so here's the big point. I have to use my moral reasoning aided by the text to figure out what's going on. Is the poet in the background setting this up so that I have to figure out the difference? And in doing so, my moral reasoning is being educated by putting two almost contemporaneous scenes against each other with different reactions from Virgil. I'm then forced to say, what's the difference? 
I'm then forced to mm, kind of ferret it out, look at the text. Dante said at me, at me, poor me, poor me. And the last time it doesn't this time, Virgil inserts himself here. He sees it more as transactional. I have to infer all of this. And so my moral reasoning is being educated in the ways of the afterlife. This is obviously what I think, that the difference in the passages is part of the reader's growing education, because this is going to be the point of Purgatorio and Paradiso and the part that's so hard for so many people. Dante wants the second two canticles of comedy, Purgatorio and Paradiso, to be educative for me, the reader, not necessarily for the pilgrim, although sure for the pilgrim, Dante, but more for me. And by putting two contrasting scenes against each other, I'm being forced into moral reasoning by the text guidance to figure out the difference. And there might be more differences than I'm pointing out. You might come up with a different set of moral reasonings, and that's the point. The text is opening out to the reader's moral education and moral reasoning to try to explain its differences, which makes it harder. I'm not being spoon-fed the answers. I'm having to figure them out by looking at the text and thinking about what I know about Christian morality and Dante's, sometimes Christian, sometimes not, morality, and figure out what's the difference in the scenes. All right, let's talk about where we are in this passage, because where we are seems really important, and we've kind of left it alone. We know we arrived up out of hell. We know we got to this place. We know we descended to the bottom of Purgatory, where the reeds were. Dante got washed up. The angel came in a boat. Then we started climbing. Then we found, well, Kazela sang. Then we started climbing. Then we found uh, Manfred. Then we found Balakwa. We, we know that this all is part of a larger mountain system. But where exactly are we? Well, in traditional commentary thought, we are in ante-purgatory, A-N-T-E, ante-purgatory, not anti-purgatory, not like against purgatory, but ante-purgatory, before purgatory. And we know this because Palakwa has told us that an angel ahead of us sits at the gate of purgatory. But Dante has been none too helpful in explaining exactly where we are. He hasn't said oh, we're in the vestibule of purgatory. We know an angel sits at a gate ahead of us, and if we've read the poem and are now rereading it, we know we're not in purgatory yet. But if we're just reading it for the first time, we may be thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, where's the purgation? Ante-purgatory, I don't like the term, but it's common in criticism. Ante-purgatory is Dante's sole creation. There is no justification for this landscape in any theology. The only justification may be those neutrals in Inferno who were before the first circle of limbo, the guys being chased around by wasps and flies in the muck, the angels and humans together with the banners, with no insignia, being stung, all the screaming, the neutrals. That was a vestibule to hell. This is a vestibule to purgatory, except this vestibule is not one canto long. It's much longer. These souls all seem very different from each other. I mean, we have had the 
ones who have willfully neglected their salvation and even been excommunicated, that is Manfred, until the last second. We've had those who have kind of lazily neglected their salvation, like Balakwa, and now we're coming on to some souls, if you remember from our read-through of Canto V, who died violently right at the last second without formal last rites. So we're coming on different sorts of souls, all stuck out here in this weird liminal, to use a very fancy word, liminal landscape before purgatory. And this liminal landscape is going to last us all the way to Canto 9. Long time spent here before we even get to the gate of purgatory in this landscape that is Dante's sole creation. Well, listen, the mountain of purgatory is Dante's creation. Some people thought it might be Etna, but, you know, it's mostly Dante's creation that he is creating even a pre-purgatory spot is really an imaginative tour de force. I think you should also notice that up to this point, with the exception of Cato and the angel who drives the boat, everybody has been Dante's contemporary. Manfred, Casella, Balacqua, the guys we're going to meet in this canto, and Pia, the woman we're going to meet in this canto, they're all Dante's contemporaries, roughly. That's interesting, because by this point, Canto five of Inferno, we'd met all kinds of historical figures in Limbo, the great poets, Horace and Homer, we'd seen Dido, Semiramis, we'd seen all these great classical figures with the lustful. To use John Carroll's phrase from his 1906 study of Purgatorio, these are all the souls who are the prisoners of hope. They hope to get into Purgatory, and they will get into Purgatory. Does that include Cato? I don't know. I think so. But they are prisoners of hope. They're not even to the place yet where they can purgate their sins. We find out from Manfred that you have to spend 30 years for each year you were excommunicated. We find out from Balakwa that he has to spend as long out here as he did kind of doing nothing, just lazing them out instead of believing in God and taking the church sacraments and doing whatever it was he was supposed to be doing, repenting of his sins and all that kind of stuff. So we find there's a temporal place here. We're going to find more about that ahead of us. All of these souls are caught here in this liminal transitory space. They're caught without being able to progress. So to use Carol's brilliant phrase, they are indeed prisoners of hope. And just think about that for a minute. Just sit back and think. Surely we know people who are prisoners of hope. Surely we have been prisoners of hope. Surely you know how uncomfortable that makes you feel. Oh, maybe soon he'll love me. Oh, maybe soon she'll love me. Oh, maybe soon he'll want to move in together. Oh, maybe soon she'll want to marry me. Oh, maybe soon my parents will approve of me. Maybe I'll get into Harvard. Maybe I'll get into Yale. We all know this, right? This prisoner of hope. Maybe I'll get that promotion. Maybe I'll be able to get that mortgage. And that prisoner of hope is such a paralyzing place. You're so stuck. You can't really go anywhere. And this is what makes the opening cantos of purgatory so interesting. We are in a place of the afterlife in which everybody seems to be afflicted 
by a kind of paralysis, a place where we should be all very hopeful. Yay, we're headed for heaven. And yet we're not. We're hanging out here in the antechamber to purgatory. Enough said for this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Thanks for being with me on this walk. I certainly appreciate your being here. You know what I'm going to say. Wait, like, do all that stuff, write a review. Do the stuff that I ask, please, because it helps with the algorithm of the podcast. I really appreciate that. But again, we're doing this for the sheer joy of Walking with Dante. Do I hold that there is a purgatory out there? No. Am I fascinated by what Dante makes of it? Absolutely, because it is an unbelievable imaginative effort, an effort to create even parts of purgatory far beyond Christian theology, that is, the doorstep or antechambers of purgatory where the souls are the prisoners of hope. I'm Mark Scarborough, and we got more prisoners of hope ahead of us next on Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.